Praise the Lord, everybody. Happy Sabbath to you all. It's a beautiful day here in Russellville, Arkansas. But we all miss one another since we are all separated by this pandemic. But I'm confident that God will use it for good. Amen. I'd like to talk about how God adds and multiplies to us. He does it often by using subtraction. When God is adding to us, he sometimes multiplies by subtraction. He takes from us or receives from us what we're willing to give in order to add to us like he did with the five barley loaves of bread and the two small fish that the young lad was willing to give Jesus and his disciples. And with that, they fed over 5,000 men. So God uses what we have, like he did in that case. He used a young shepherd named David with a slingshot in order to slay Goliath. He used Gideon calling him a mighty man of valor. He, had, he was not a warrior. He was not someone who was skilled with a weapon. And he sent him out in battle with a trumpet and an earthen vessel with a light in it. And God used that for his glory. We find when Elisha met this widow who had some oil and he asked her to make or she came to him actually and said, the creditors have come and they're going to take me and my son, sell them as slaves because we can't pay our bills. And the first thing that the prophet asked was, what do you have? <laughs> she said, well, I don't have anything of value. All I have is this jar of oil. He said, all right. Well, then God will multiply that. But what you have to do, you have to subtract that from yourself first. You have to pour it out first. Now, I want you to go to all your neighbors and get all the containers, all the jars, anything that will hold oil in it, and you bring it here to your house. And you begin to pour that one jar of oil into all those containers, and each one of them was filled. And when the last one was filled, then that's when her little jar ran out. You see, it would have kept up. The more she provided a place for that oil to be poured, it would have continued to be poured because it was a miracle from God. Amen? Now I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Now, we're also going to read John chapter 15 after this, but we're going to begin in Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to see in these scriptures that God removes unfruitful branches. You know, there in the, that when Jesus was saying, I am the vine, and you are the branches. And every branch in me, every branch that is on this vine that does not bear fruit, I'm going to cut it off and I'm going to cast it in the fire and burn it. But then he said, 
every branch that bears fruit, I'm going to cut it. I'm going to prune it back. Now, we don't like that. You know, in our mind, we think it's a painful process to be pruned. And we're thinking, well, Lord, I'm bearing fruit for you already. I'm already a fruitful bow. I'm on you. I'm connected to you. I'm a part of you, you being the vine. And I'm already bearing fruit for you. And that's painful. I don't like to be cut. I don't like to have things subtracted from me, cut away from me. I don't like to give up things that I'm attached to. And I'm already bearing fruit. Isn't it enough? And the Lord says it's not enough. And one thing that we have to remember, brethren, is that the vine is Jesus. We are merely the branches. And so what we're really learning here is that Jesus himself is pruned. He's pruned. He's cut back in order that he may bear more fruit. Matter of fact, that's why he went into the grave. That's why as a kernel of wheat, he fell to the ground and died in order that there would be a harvest. Now for us, we're much more concerned with being comfortable. We think, I'm not comfortable with letting go of things I'm attached to. I, I'm really not comfortable being cut back, being pruned. It's painful. I don't understand it. I don't see where it goes. I trust you, Lord. I'm trying my best, but I, it's difficult. And I don't really understand that. You see, but God is not so much concerned with how comfortable we are as if we are bearing much fruit. The Bible says that that's how God is even glorified, is that we bear much fruit in John 15. So God removes unfruitful branches, those who are attached to Jesus, who wants more fruit, but they stop bearing fruit, they, they stop producing, they stop uh, allowing the life of the vine to, to come through them. They became dried out. They began to dry out, not bear fruit, and God cuts them off and casts them into the fire, and the dry wood is just burned away. But those who are bearing fruit, those branches that are bearing fruit, he even prunes those back. And you know, anytime you look at a, at a bush or a tree that's been pruned, it's not a pretty sight. It's an ugly sight. It's not pleasant to look at. But when the season comes around to bear fruit, it's beautiful. It's fuller. It bears much more fruit when it's pruned pro properly at the proper time. So God removes unfruitful branches and he prunes those that are fruitful. We don't enjoy it. It's not something that we enjoy, but it's something that brings glory to him. Now here in Matthew chapter 5, uh, in verse 29 and 30, we see, this is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off. And throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. Now, that's telling us that some part of us 
can bring us down even to the point to where we uh, suffer condemnation in hell. So he's saying here it's a principle of pruning it off. If there's something there that is not bearing fruit or is bearing bad fruit or is going to cause you to stumble, cut it off. Cut it off. And that's what God tells us to do. Now let's go over to Matthew or to John chapter 15. And let's read. This is the last Passover, and Jesus is explaining to his apostles that he is the true vine, and they are branches on that vine. Verse 1, Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. So here we have a vine dresser. And you know, like any vine dresser or anyone that, that, that uh, works with plants, they examine the plant. And the very point of any plant is to bear whatever it's to bear, whether it's a beautiful flower, whether it's something like a fruit to eat, Whatever, there is a goal, uh, something that will be uh, wonderful for shade, full, the branches being full and being an oasis, a shade, you know, for other animals and for people to get under and to find shelter from the sun. The Lord is looking. He is examining each one of the branches on his vine, the vine of his son, Jesus and the goal is, he planted you and me not to be comfortable, not to necessarily find great happiness in this world, because when we think about eternity, it's but a blink. It's just a, 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 a passing moment in time. Eternity is ever, has ever been and ever shall be. It has no beginning. And it has no end. And so he has created us and planted eternity, a desire for eternity in our heart. And his gift is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So we have to be found in Christ Jesus. And if we want to stay in Christ Jesus, then we must bear fruit. Because he has planted us to bear fruit. Not to be comfortable not the, you know, our best life now in this world, having all the things that the world has to offer. Jesus tells us the exact opposite. He says, store up your treasure in heaven where nothing can erode it. No one can steal it. Uh, you know, moths can't eat it up. It will never rust. It's always there. You have security there when your treasure is in heaven. So think of ourselves. Jesus is a vine, and we are branches on that vine. Let's say it's a, it's a great vine. Well, when the, the vine is growing, and, and the vine dresser comes out, and he's looking at this, his beautiful vine, and he sees that the, the vine is full of life. It's vibrant. It's pulsing with life, just like Jesus, because it is Jesus. And it's pulsing with life. And the life of God is running through that vine. And then he, but, but you know where the, the fruit is? The fruit is on the branches. 
So he follows that vine and he looks at the branches that come off that vine and he, he examines them and he sees which branches are bearing fruit. And he's happy when he sees a branch bearing fruit. But he wants that same branch to bear more fruit. So in the right season, he prunes that back. He cuts back. He takes something. He subtracts something from that branch in order to multiply back in due season. Sometimes God takes things from us. Sometimes God asks things from us, like he asked Abraham, give me your son. Take your son three days from now and offer him to me on this mountain. Abraham did not understand, but in faith, he stepped out and he was willing to do that. And when he got to the moment of truth where he had to lay his son on that altar and he had the knife and he was ready to bleed out the life of his own son and to burn him as an offering to God. How difficult was that? Now that is a pruning process. What did he prune away from Abraham? His son. First he pruned his family, and leaving the city of his birth, the great city of Ur. He said, Abraham, I've called you. You're a man of great wealth. I've blessed you. I want to bring, I want you to follow me. I want you to come out of this great city of Ur. And I want you to live in the treacherous and dangerous desert. It's a perilous place where there are bandits out there and murderers and all types of You're going to encounter all types of peril out there. I want you to take your wealth, take your your family, and you go out there and live in a tent. Come out of the greatest city that has ever been, the city of Ur, where people lived in luxury, two-story homes, indoor plumbing. (laughs) Fourteen rooms was the average size of every home. I mean, they were living in mansions. They were living in peace. And God says, listen, I'm, I'm bringing you out from that great city and I want you to go to live in the desert. And he obeyed. See, God subtracted from him everything that he had known, his comfort zone. He wasn't comfortable. Do you think he was comfortable going and living in a tent after living in luxury in the great city of Ur? No, physically he wasn't comfortable. But Abraham had learned that his, his true comfort had to be in obeying, faithfully obeying the Lord. He could not find peace without knowing that he was in obedience to the Lord. And so that's where he was not going to be, if if the Lord had called him out of Ur and he didn't leave, he would have never found peace in the city of Ur. He had to leave and follow. He had to find his peace, his, his shelter, his future in the Lord. And so the Lord drew him out. He said, I'm going to, I'm going to give you a son, even in your your old age. Well, he couldn't really believe it for a while. Sarah even laughed at the idea because she was 65 years old and it was another 25 years before Isaac was born. She was 90 when Isaac was born. It was an impossible, um, an event, but All things are possible with God. Amen. So there Abraham was, uh, finally with a child. And he loved this child, Isaac. And Sarah loved this child, Isaac. 
And then one day, God said, I'm going, in order to multiply you, although he didn't tell Abraham this, this is what he had in mind. I want to, Abra I want to multiply Abraham. He had already told Abraham, I'm going to multiply your seed They're going to, through Isaac. <clears throat> They're going to become like the stars of heaven, by the, like the sands of the seashore. You are going to become, uh, many nations are going to come from you through your son, the promise, the promise child, the son of promise, Isaac. Now this was a promise. Now sometimes, you know, the Lord, we receive a promise from the Lord. And we think when we receive a promise from the Lord, the Lord will never ask us to give back that promise. I mean, <clears throat> We generally don't do that, do we? If we give someone a gift, we don't ever go back and say, give me that gift back. Unless we're on uh, bad terms with one another and we just spitefully say, give me that back. Maybe you gave someone an engagement ring and, and then there's a falling out in the relationship and you just go back and say, give me that ring back. I paid a lot of money for that ring and then you can't have it because you broke up with me. But that wasn't the case. Abraham was in God's grace. God was pleased with Abraham. But how was God going to bring it about? How was he going to take Isaac and make Isaac many nations? Make Isaac, his life, bless all the nations of the world. And the greatest gift that came from Isaac, of course, was the promised seed of Jesus by which the whole nation of Christians was born. But there he is. He said, now I want to subtract from you. He didn't tell Abraham, I have to subtract from you your son, or at least the willingness for you to lay down your son in order for me to multiply back to you the blessings that I promised to you. It seemed like God was just asking Abraham to give back what he had promised him and what he had given to him. All the promises were in Isaac. And Abraham is, doubt is coming into his mind at points and you know the thoughts were coming in saying how is it that God is going to fulfill the promise of many nations, of many multitudes of people through my son Isaac if I slay him and offer him as an offering. But then he began to have faith. And he began to think, I don't know how God is going to do it. I just know that he is going to do it. I don't know why God is doing this, but I know that God is doing this. Therefore, I'm going to put my faith in him. And he did. And he thought to himself, God is able to even raise it in. Perhaps he, he allows me to kill my son Isaac. My son Isaac asked me, Father, we have the fire, we have the wood, but Where is the sacrifice? And Abraham replied, God will provide a sacrifice for himself. And it was the picture of what he had spoken of or what he would later speak of through the prophets who said, a body you have prepared for yourself. And that body, that sacrificial body, of course, is a lamb of God, Jesus. Because the natural animals could not wash away sin. All they could do was serve it as a reminder of sin. So sometimes what God has to do, he has to subtract from us 
in order to multiply back to us. He will take what is in your hand. He will take maybe what he has even given you and ask for you to lay that down in order to multiply it back to you. That's how God works. Usually that's how he works. Now here he says, every branch, verse 2, in me. So every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, that is the Father, takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. Now, we should see ourselves, you know, we, we like to see ourselves as the children of God. We like to see ourselves as mighty warriors of God. I mean, that's flattering. We like to see ourselves as the beloved bride of Jesus Christ, and that's a flattering thing. We like to see ourselves as a royal priesthood, as kings and priests who will rule with Christ with a rod of iron. We like to see ourselves in, in the light of those things, and we are all of those things. We are the children of God. We do call God uh, our Father. We cry out, Abba, Daddy. We, we do that. But we are other things also. We're the salt of the world. Amen? And we are lights in a dark place. Now, we're in a dark place sometimes. And it's in the dark places where we have to let our light shine. You see, that's fruit. When God places us in a dark place, we're in a dark world, but in our life, we each go through valleys of the shadow of death. We go through dark places. We go through dry places, you see. But the life of Christ is still in us. It doesn't seem like it. It seems like we may be alone. It seems like, you know, that God has forsaken us or we don't know where he is or we can't count on him, but he is there whether we feel him or not. Whether he says anything, whether he lets us know, he said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will be with you till the end. And he said there's a time of darkness coming upon the whole world, but there's always a period of darkness that we go through as saints of God. We're always going through something. And, and it comes right now with this uh, coronavirus, the whole world is going through a period of darkness. We're all subtracted from one another. But I am convinced that this is from God and that he will use it for his good. I think this is a good thing in many ways. It shows people that they need God, that they are not safe. Everybody thinks that they're safe. You know, James said, don't say that well, tomorrow I'm going here, I'm going there, and the next day I'm going to this place. He says, you don't even know if you'll be alive, alive tomorrow. You don't know what tomorrow brings. Today is enough. Jesus said the same thing. Don't worry about tomorrow. Don't be anxious about it. For today's troubles is enough for today. And that's very much true. So we're going to go through periods of time. Uh, periods of our life which seem very dark to us. It's, it's difficult. It's hard. And we feel pressure. But it's at that time that the Lord is looking for the fruit of light. During, in the darkness, what will you do with your light? Will you put a bushel over it or will you let it shine? Will you be who you were created and planted to be. As I said, 
God planted you and I in Christ Jesus to bear much fruit. And he planted the promised seed of Jesus in us so that in our lives we would bear much fruit. And it's by that that God is glorified. So it's what we do during those times. What did Abraham do when God says, come out of Ur, that great city, and live in the desert? He had to separate Lot from himself. You know, Abraham loved his nephew Lot. In a lot of ways, though, Lot was a weak person. In a lot of ways, Lot only caused trouble for Abraham. In a lot of ways, even though Abraham loved him, there was trouble there in that relationship. And, you know, even Lot ended up, you know, being uh, uh, kidnapped and taken away. And Abraham had to go and fight an army in order to rescue his nephew Lot. But it came down to a point where enough was enough. And for, for God to multiply Abraham, he separated, he subtracted Lot. If you just look to Genesis, you'll see that it was after God separated Lot from Abraham that Abraham began to really be blessed. And his life was truly blessed. It was after that. But he loved Lot, but Lot was a problem. Lot was a problem. So finally at one point, the Lord moved in him, saying, okay, Lot, listen, there's too much conflict between us. You choose which way. You choose. You go one way, and I'll go the other way. You take this land or this land. Whichever one you choose, I'll take the other. I'll let you choose. And as Lot was, Lot looked and he said, you know what, I think I'm going to choose the best for myself. So that's what he was thinking. But see, God was going to make wherever Abraham was, there was going to be a blessing because he was faithful. So now every branch that doesn't bear fruit is separated, is subtracted from the vine, cut away. And every branch that bears fruit the Lord is not satisfied. He's not content with the amount of fruit. He wants it to bear more. Perhaps at the beginning he sees and says, well, this little branch here off this vine, it's, it's producing 30-fold. That's pretty good. But I believe if I prune it back a little bit, the next season, when it's time to bear fruit in season, it's going to bear me 60-fold. And then the next season, it bears 60-fold. And then he says, you know what? I believe this little branch right here on this beautiful vine, I believe that if I prune it back just right, just subtract from it what needs to be subtracted that is in the way. You see, sometimes there has to be something has to die in order for a birth. A seed has to die before it can become a plant. That's what Jesus said. Seed has to go into the ground and die, and then it will become a plant and bear much fruit. But Jesus, I mean, the, the Father's looking at this branch, and he perhaps he says, well, okay, it, it bore 30-fold. 30 now, this last year, it bore 60-fold. But you know what? I see the potential. I see the ultimate potential 
in this branch. And I believe this branch has the power and the ability. It's in this little branch to bring forth to me 100-fold that it could truly bring a great harvest that would glorify me as a creator of all things, as the vine dresser. And so he prunes it back just right, cutting away the things that are in the way. You see, there are things in the way. There's things in our attitude that are in the way of us becoming what God wants us to become. Amen? There may be people in there in our lives that are in the way. Already in your life, there's been people that have been subtracted. I've had a lot of people subtracted from my life. And honestly, uh, I have mourned over those. I've sat down and cried. I've, I've you know, and the thing about it is, though, um, it's worse when the separation is from, you know, uh, a conflict but it's still bad if it's not, if it's just a mutual separation and you become friends or whatever. You, just, you don't like it because we're attached, we're comfortable. That's, we don't want to let go. We like what we have. We get used to it. And we love the things we have. We love the people we have in our lives. Sometimes God has to remove. It may be temporary. Right now we're living in a temporary separation, aren't we? The whole world is being separated. All of our brothers and sisters in the whole world, I was talking to some of our African ministers last night, and they were talking about how, you know, it's just like house to house. Each house is just having to have services. They don't have the, you know, the ability to stream services like we do so that we could actually have some type of semblance of being together. Where I can, in real time, you know, uh, talk with you. You can see me in real time. I can't see you, but I have the, the comfort and the joy of knowing that you're watching. And I also have the comfort and joy in knowing that our other brothers and sisters that live on the other side of the world where they may be asleep right now, but when daybreak comes, they can go onto YouTube and they can watch our services, and they do. And they can be blessed by what we're able to do, and God has given us that ability to do that, and we're very thankful for it. Now, verse 3, he says, You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. So he's speaking to them now as his disciples. And he says, Abide in me. Now, we abide in him like a branch abides in the vine. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. You know, what's necessary for fruit on a branch is going to have to come through the vine itself. I am the vine and you are the branches. And he who abides in me, I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Now notice verse 8. This is extremely important. This basically reveals to us 
why we are here. We are here to bear fruit for God. If we're a plant, we bear fruit. God wants something out of us. He wants us to be the salt of the earth he, that preserves the earth. He wants us to be lights in a dark world, you see. He wants us to be the body of Christ, preaching the gospel. He wants us to show the love of God by our love toward one another. And he wants us to bear fruit. When we let our light shine, that's bearing fruit. Amen. When we are salt that is good, that's bearing fruit. That seasons the world. And it not only seasons the world to make it palatable, palatable to God, but it, it also, salt is a preservative that preserves things. My Father is glorified by this. This is verse 8. Notice, how is God glorified? That you bear much fruit. How is the Father glorified? That you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. Now, how are you going to bear fruit? Well, you're going to yield yourself to the vine dresser. You're going to keep yourself attached to the vine, abiding in the vine, obedient, holding on to that vine. He's not going to let go of you. Hold on to that vine. Yield to the life that is in that vine. Yield to the word, it says, also. And bear much fruit. He's going to prune you back. He's going to cut. He's going to separate some things in order to multiply your, his harvest. He's looking for a harvest in you and in me. He planted us for a harvest. You know, Jesus looked over the fields and he told his disciples, look, even now the fields are white. You can see the, the barley grain the white tips of the grain on, on the stalks there, on the barley as it's, the wind was blowing it, as it's blowing in the wind. And he says, look, behold, the harvest is ripe, but the laborers of few pray that God would send laborers out there. So let's understand that we are a branch. And if we're a branch, God planted us in Jesus on the vine in order that we would bear much fruit in order that he would be glorified. You remember, all things were created by him and for him and for his glory. And that includes us. We weren't made for ourselves. We were made for his glory. And we're going to be glorified and, and have pleasures forevermore and the fullness of joy throughout all eternity. But we've got to get there first, amen? Now let's go over to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. <clears throat> so sometimes God has to remove something old in order for something new to be birthed. Now here, and we, we've read this scripture a lot. We're going to begin in uh, uh, verse 17. John chapter 12, verse 17. Uh, but we're, we've read this before, uh, and we've... We've talked about the main point of, you know, Jesus being a kernel of wheat and dying and bearing fruit. But today I'd like us to look at also the context of what was said 
why Jesus said this and why he continued, because it's a continuing on of a context. And it's, the context is Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. He'd been in the tomb for four days. And so he raised him from the dead. And this is the context. So we're, we're seeing that the principle, Jesus is saying he's the kernel of wheat. But he's saying also like this, just as Lazarus was raised from the dead, that he was like a kernel of wheat and fell into the ground and he died and he was in the tomb for four days. He was raised. And that being raised is, is, was a type. It was a forerunner of future, uh, looking into the future for the harvest. You see, obviously he raised Lazarus from the dead before he was risen from the dead. Of course, when Jesus, uh, Lazarus had to die again and he's awaiting the resurrection again. But that's the context. So let's begin reading in verse 17. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. Of course, this is what led to his death. For this reason also the people went and met with him because they heard that he had performed this sign. Okay, this word got out. I mean, people knew who Lazarus was in Bethany, two miles from Jerusalem. Uh, there were many, many uh, religious Jews who were there that really uh, probably opposed Jesus who went back and told the chief priests and the Pharisees and the Sadducees about what had happened, what they had seen that Jesus literally, after Lazarus had been in the days in the grave four days, his body would be suffering uh, decay. Matter of fact, when Jesus said, have the stone removed, you know, Lazarus' sister said, oh, he's, he will, there will be a terrible odor. He's already decomposing. He, he will be stinking at this point, Lord, if you can't move that stone away. But he moved it away and he called Lazarus. He said, Lazarus, come forth. And he came forth alive. No decay. He was completely restored. So the word got out. I mean, people could not believe. And there was great rejoicing and all uh, in this. Now, but see, think about what happened before that. Word came while Lazarus was sick. Word came to Jesus. And his disciples came up to him and said, you know, Lazarus is sick, even unto death. And so here's what they thought. They were sending for Jesus, Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sisters. They Sending to Jesus, thinking, well, they've seen him heal so many people. He'll come immediately, and he will heal our brother." And the disciples were perplexed. They were wondering, well, why is it that we're not leaving? And they asked Jesus, and he said, well, he tarried a little bit longer. And then the word came back and said, well, it's too late. Don't worry about it. Lazarus died. And his disciples were still perplexed. They're thinking, why didn't we go, Lord? Why is it that you just let Lazarus die? His life was subtracted from the living. Why did you let him die? Well, Jesus let him die. He let him be subtracted from the land of the living in order to come back as a more bountiful 
harvest. And it got the attention of everybody. Everybody's saying, wow, the dead, death cannot hold. Death has no permanent hold. Here's a man that came and brought someone back from the dead. There's hope for all mankind. That's why people were thinking, uh, you mean we can come back from the dead? We can literally be raised from the dead. We can be in the land of the dead and we can come back to the land of the living and live once again, have the breath of life in us once again. I mean, that shocked the whole region, everyone who saw and heard. And they were coming to Jesus. They wanted to know, you know, wow, we just got to look at this man who has done this great miracle. Verse 20, now there were some Greeks among those who were coming up to worship at the feast. And they came to Philip and they said, well, you know, we want to ask, we want to see Jesus. We want to see this man that we've been hearing about that raised a person from the dead that had been dead in the tomb for four days. We want to see him. And, you know, as I mentioned before, you know, Jesus oftentimes, I mean, Nicodemus wants to know, in John chapter 3, he wants to know, are you, we know you're a great teacher, Jesus. We know that, but are you the one? Are you the Messiah we've been waiting for? That's what he really wanted to know. He never got it out, but Jesus answered according to what was in Nicodemus's heart. And he said, now, Nicodemus, you can't see the kingdom of God unless you be born again. You have to be born again. It's not going to appear like you think. It's not what you think. And it's not enough to be an heir. You can't be an heir simply by being a son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You have to be born again of the spirit, of the promised seed, in order to, be, to see the kingdom of God and to enter into the kingdom of God. Well, Nicodemus wasn't asking that. He wasn't even asking that yet. But Jesus answered him that way. And Jesus here, I mean, here's some G Greeks. They came to worship because they were believers. They were Gentiles, but they were believers. They had received the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so they came and they saw Peter. They saw or someone maybe told them that that's one of Jesus' disciples right there. That guy right there, his name is Peter. So he, they went to him and said, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now notice, and so Philip came and he told Andrew and Andrew, Philip, and Philip came and they told Jesus. Now what did they tell Jesus? There's some Jews who believe. They heard of the great miracle that happened at Bethany when you raised Lazarus from the dead and they want to see you. They just want to see you. And Jesus said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, that had nothing to do. Had zero to do with them wanting to come and see him, did it? I mean, if I'm Peter uh, or Philip and Andrew, I'm thinking, what's this got to do with anything? But see, he had already given the example of this in raising Lazarus from the dead. So he says, he who loves his life, listen, you love your life, you're going to lose it. So here it is. You, you're, you love your life. Loving your life is like a branch on the vine that doesn't bear fruit. You're going to lose it. 
It's going to be cut off by the vine dresser. So you see, the vine dresser is looking. He's looking around. He's, it's his plant. It's his body. It's the, it's the body of Jesus. And the vine dresser, the father, is looking at his son, the body of Jesus. And he planted you in Christ to bear fruit for him that he would be glorified. That's what we read. How is he glorified? That we bear fruit. That we bear fruit. What does it take to bear fruit? Well, it takes pruning. First, it takes to be in Christ, to be a branch on the vine. And then, if you're on the vine, if you're on the vine, which is Jesus, the Father is going to prune that vine. The branches that he has planted on that vine, he's going to prune in order that they would bear fruit. Now, there's no branch that resists the pruning. A branch cannot resist the pruning. But a branch can deny the Lord fruit. A branch can decide. You can decide, I'm not going to let my light shine in this dark world. When I'm going through a dark trial, I'm not going to let the light of Christ shine through, through me. I'm going to let the devil shine through me. I'm going to let the world shine through me. I'm going to have put over me a, a bushel basket so that the light of Christ can't shine through me to the world. You see, that's not bearing fruit, is it? Well, how do we react how do we react to things? Abraham left Ur. Abraham reacted by giving his son, offering his son Isaac. God gave him back Isaac. Well, you know, think about this. Abraham laid down his son on the altar right here. He laid down his son. He took his only son and he laid his son down on this altar. And he's ready to take the life of his son and give him, offer him as a burnt offering to the Lord. He was willing to do that. But God then stopped him and said, do no harm to your son Isaac. And then as he looked up, he saw that God had provided that there was a ram caught in a bush. And he offered him in place. And it was, and it was fulfilled what Abraham said. God, I mean, Abraham told his son Isaac, God will provide an offering for himself. And he did. But listen, he laid down one son, his only son. But when he brought Isaac up, he wasn't just bringing Isaac up as his son. He was bringing a multitude of nations up. He was bringing offspring like the stars of heaven and the sands of the seashore. He was bringing up a promised child by which all nations would be blessed. A child through whom? the seed of Jesus would come that would take away the sins of the world. The true sacrifice would come. So whatever we're willing to lay down, God will receive and he will multiply that back. Doesn't mean it's not painful. Pruning is painful but he will multiply it back. So he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Verse 23, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. 
Okay. Now, we understand this, that's referring to Jesus. Amen? That he's going to go in the ground and die. But now he switches to you and me. And he says, he who loves his life loses it. In other words, if you're a branch on the vine and you don't bear fruit, it's because you love your life. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. That's hate by comparison. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now, Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 gives the same principle. That's where the Apostle Paul said that the life he lived was not his own. He said, I've been crucified with Christ, yet I live. But he says, it's not really me living, but it's him living his life in me. The life that I live is Christ. That's what he said. Now let's go over to 2 Kings chapter 4. 2 Kings chapter 4. This is the story about uh, the widow's oil that I mentioned earlier. 2 Kings chapter 4, God multiplied this widow's oil after she was willing to subtract it by pouring it out according to what the prophet Elijah had counseled her to do. Verse 1, now a certain woman of the wives of the son of the prophets, cried out to Elisha, your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord. And the creditor has come to take my two sons to be his slaves. So there's a real problem. There's a dilemma here. And Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? What do you have to give? Now, the Lord will take away. But the Lord will also, you know, sometimes the Lord won't even ask you. <laughs> the Lord will take away something from you. He'll prune something. He'll subtract something from you. Maybe a person from you. Something from you and say, why? Why did you do that, Lord? He did it in order to multiply your harvest, the harvest back to him that you give back to him. Everything that, that Jesus, Jesus is going to deliver up all power and all authority to the Father. He does everything for the sake of the Father. Sometimes, though, the Lord will do what he did with Abraham, and he'll ask Abraham. Now, see, he didn't ask Job. He just took from Job. He subtracted from Job. He subtracted from Job his wealth, his family. He subtracted all that from Job. It was a better pill, especially for his earth, his wife. I mean, his wife was filled with so much contempt. She just said, why don't you just curse God and die? She blamed him. You're the cause of all this. Well, Job was a righteous man. His three friends came and they were saying, you know, God is not unfaithful. God is not going to do this. He's not going to visit these terrible things upon you unless you've done something wrong. This has to be a punishment. Well, it wasn't a punishment. 
Job was the most righteous man on this entire earth at the time. It was not a punishment. What happened to him was not a punishment. What happened to him happened to him because he was righteous. But God saw him, perhaps God saw in him, 30-fold. And perhaps God said, I believe that I can receive 100-fold from him. In order to do that, though, he had to prune a lot of things that were very painful. And Job responded by just saying, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Who am I to judge the Lord? I can't judge the Lord. I mean, yes, he gave me these children. Yes, he gave me all this wealth. He gave me my cattle. He gave me my servants. He gave all these things. But do they not truly belong to him? I can't take them with me to the tomb. They are but temporary. There's nothing that I had. There's no one in my life that would live forever. They will all die. Isn't it God's choice? Isn't his, isn't his, his right to determine when he takes that life back? Did not life come from him? Did he not give life? Did he not breathe life, send that life into the world? Can he not require of it anytime he gets ready? It's his. You know, if someone lets, uh, you know, lets you borrow something, isn't it his right to come and retrieve it anytime he gets ready? It's not yours. It belongs to someone else. He, it's enough that he lets you have it for a while. That he lets you use it for a while. That's enough. He determines when to come and get it. Perhaps he might let you borrow his lawnmower for a year. Maybe it's just for a day. Now, if he lets you borrow his lawnmower for a year and he comes back and gets it and you're very thankful and the next year you, you come and say, may I borrow your lawnmower? And he says, yeah, you can borrow my lawnmower. And, and you mow your lawn and he comes and gets it the next day. Is he unjust? Because... This time he said, well, I will only let you have it for one day. Are you right in your criticism of him saying, well, but you let me, that's not fair. You let me have it for a year. Last time. Well, there was no guarantee. God doesn't say that you're going to live for 70 years. God doesn't say that you're going to live for five years. God gives, God takes away. All life comes from God. All life goes back to God. He can take life whenever he wants to, and he's completely just in doing so. And only God sees the end from the beginning. Only God knows why he does what he does. But we can understand one thing, that God is loving, God is kind, God is merciful. And God wants to bless. He wants to give. That's his nature. I mean, we can't judge God in a different way knowing that he did not withhold his own, his own son from us. And not only that, but he allowed him to be brutally beaten so that we could be healed of our sicknesses. So God is just, God is loving. But all of Job's children all of his servants, all of his cattle, all, every, everything that belonged to him was given to him. It was given to him. And it wasn't something that would be permanent. Every life 
has an expiration date. Every single one. Every living thing has an expiration date. Everything that lives will someday die. And God gives, it's his prerogative. It's his total right to take back what he gives anytime. And so we can look at it two different ways. We can, we can be angry at God because he took, back some, took something from us that he had given to us. Or we can be appreciative that God gave that to us for a time. And perhaps... It's like when we lay down and God says, here, give that to me, and we give it to him, perhaps he raises it back up, puts it right back in our arms, multiplied like he did with, with Isaac. More often than not, that's what he does. Now, he blessed Job. <laughs> I mean, he blessed Job and gave Job more children. Gave, I mean, more life. These these children, he would have not, these children would have never lived had the first children had not been taken. But you can say, well, that's so terrible. That's so, no, it's not. You're thinking in terms of a blink of, a, a blink of an eye, just a twinkling of, in time and compared with eternity where there is no beginning and no end. Job will see his children again. He hasn't lost them, you see. And they didn't belong to him in the first place. The Lord says, all children are mine. Thus saith the Lord, they belong to me. Ezekiel chapter 18 says, all souls are mine. Every soul belongs to me. And if he calls one soul from this life to death, anytime, it's his choice, his choosing. And there's a reason for it, and we don't have to know the reason. Amen? So he says, what shall I do? Verse 2, what shall I do for you? Tell me. What do you have in your house? And we have to always ask. God is looking. What do you have in your house? God is looking at us as a little branch on the vine, and he's looking in there, and he says, you know what? I see 30-fold, but I know I can get 60 out of it. And if I keep pruning this in time... I'll get a hundred out of it. I'll get a hundredfold out of it. And she said, your maid said, I, I don't have anything. I have nothing in the house except a jar of oil. That's all I have is this oil. He said, well, then go borrow vessels at large for yourself from all your neighbors, even empty vessels. Do not get a few. Get all you can get. And you shall go in and shut the door behind you and your sons and pour into all these vessels and you shall set aside what is full. Now this is impossible except with God, amen? I mean, if, if, she, if she's thinking in the natural, she's thinking, well, what good does it do to just pour the oil from one vessel into another vessel? It doesn't do any good. It's the same amount of oil. But you see what she was willing to pour out God was willing to multiply back to her, back to her, to preserve her. So she went from him and shut the door behind her and her sons, and they were bringing the vessels to her, and she poured. And when the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not one vessel more. And notice, 
when there was no more place for God to pour out, when there was no more place than another vessel, all the vessels were full. There wasn't another vessel. There was no place for another drop of oil. The oil stopped. Now we determine, really, we're vessels and we receive the oil of gladness in us. We receive the blessings from the Lord. As long as we provide a place, we will never empty. He will continue to pour, continue to pour, continue to pour. Now, he may have to subtract something to make room. He may have to prune in order for there to be a means for a greater harvest. But he's thinking about a harvest, and he planted you and he planted me not for comfort, but that he would be glorified. And he's glorified by this, that we bear much fruit. You know, Jesus said, you will know them by the fruit they bear. A good tree bears good fruit and a bad tree, bad tree bears bad fruit. Now, we, he's looking at us. He wants to see the fruit that we bear. Do we bear tolerance. What is on us? We're a tree. Does he see, what fruits does he see on that tree? Does he see the fruit of patience, of kindness, of gentleness, of self-control, of love without hypocrisy, of righteousness, of obedience, of forgiveness for others, loving tolerance, of the weaknesses of others. Does he see that on your tree? Think about it. What's coming out of your mouth? What's, what are you dwelling on in your mind? Think of those things as fruit. Now, most of us have a mixture, obviously. We are, and, and some of it is not even us. I mean, our tree in Christ is perfect. But we have to remember what Jesus said in John chapter 15 about the vine. Found on the vine were branches that were no longer bearing fruit. Now, left alone, they will fall away. They'll dry up. The wind will, will blow them and they'll eventually fall off. Not long ago, I was at a, a park and the wind was blowing and there was a dead tree nearby and there was a very, very big uh, branch off that tree that fell and came crashing down. Now, I don't know how long that branch had been on that tree, but I would say that that tree was probably at least 50, 60 years old. It was a big tree. But something had happened to that tree, and something had happened to that branch. And somewhere along the line, that branch dried up and that branch was no longer bearing fruit. It was no longer sprouting leaves and, and new growth. It was no longer pollinating. It was no longer reproducing. And it was just there dead. And a wind came along that hit it just right when it was at its weakest point and it came crashing down to the ground where it will just 
rot away. And we don't want to be like that. And we don't, we're not called to be like that, but we have to have the life of Christ in us. Look, we've got many, many branches. Look at this branch. See this branch? This is a branch of patience. Okay, you have a branch of, think of yourself as a tree. The branch of patience. This is a branch of patience. Is there fruit on that branch? This is the branch of forgiveness. You're forgiving others. You're not taking into account a wrong surface wrong suffered. You're not thinking about your own interests, but the interests of others equally. Is there fruit on this branch? You see, there has to be fruit on the branch or the vine dresser is going to take it. If it doesn't dry up and fall away on its own, the vine dresser will cut it off. You see. Think of all the different branches, self-control, kindness, gentleness, loving concern for others. All of these things God requires of us. This is walking. You know, we, we don't want to look over here and see this. Oh, this branch is malice. Or this branch is, is uh, you know, um, wrath, you know, or judgment or self-righteousness or whatever it happens to be. I mean, when Jesus was saying, he was calling out the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders who were like dirty cups. They looked good on the outside, but on the inside they were full of dead men's bones. They were just empty graves. When he was calling them out, he said, you know, you will know them by the fruit that they bear. Every bear will produce after its own kind. We are planted in Jesus. And so if we allow the spirit, the life force of that plant, that tree, to come through us all the way through the trunk, out to the branches, even to the little branches out here, which we may be, if we yield to the spirit, and we don't quench that spirit, we will bear the fruits of Jesus Christ. God, the vine dresser, will see the fruits of his son. He planted us in him to receive back the fruits of his son. The, fruit, the much fruit that we bear is the fruit of Jesus. I call it, I wrote an article once called it the Jesus tree, a little uh, devotional. And we're planted on the Jesus tree. And the Jesus tree only has good branches. Now, we understand that in, in this world, in this harvest, the devil has planted weeds, and there's weeds among the wheat. Amen? We understand that. Um, so we're going to struggle some in this world, but here's what we don't want to do. We don't want to get comfortable there. Amen? We don't want to just get comfortable and say, well, you know, I can't be perfect. No one was perfect. No one has ever been perfect except Jesus Christ. Therefore, I'm not going to worry about it. Well, okay, listen, we have to always have a heart that can be convicted. Now, obviously, God doesn't want to condemn you. If, if you feel condemnation, if you feel like God is condemning you and that there's no hope for you, that is surely the devil. It's surely the devil. Because if you're really cut off from God, you won't have any feeling at all. 
you will have already been given a depraved mind. You will already have come to believe the lie that you wouldn't let go of. So if there's a conflict in your heart, if you feel conviction, or even if you feel condemnation, that is not from God. God will never let you feel condemnation. God will only convict your heart by the Holy Spirit. And the difference in condemnation and conviction is condemnation is where there is no hope. Judge, it's already been decided about you and you are going to perish. That you're cut off, you're going to perish. Conviction is, look, I recognize that I'm not bearing the fruit that God, that I, the ultimate of what God says that I can bury, that, that I can bear, that he can do more, that I can do more, that he can do more with this vessel if I just get out of the way, if I let him subtract in order to multiply a harvest in me. Amen? That's what we need to do. And we don't get discouraged about it. I mean, fruit is born in, there's a, there's a season where uh, pruning takes place. And then there's a season where God is looking for a harvest. God is not looking for a bountiful harvest all the time. He does arrange things, has things happen in our life so that we have to deal with them. And we grow, and then when the time comes for us to bear fruit, we bear the fruit. Amen. So there was no more oil there. So verse 7, then she came and she told the man of God. And then he said, well, go and sell the oil, pay your debt, you and your sons, and live on the rest. Then we have the story of, of uh, that was Elisha. We have the story of Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 17. We won't go there, but you know the story about Elijah there where he comes upon, you know, he is, he is there's a famine in the land and there he is, um, um, you know, ended up where the brook that he was by dried out. And so he, uh, the Lord came to him and said, well, I, have, I want you to go to this certain place because I have commanded a widow there to take care of you, to feed you, and to take care of you. Well, obviously, the widow didn't get the memo. She didn't know. <laughs> she didn't get it because when uh, he got there and, and she said, he, he came up to her and he said, all right, go make me a little bread cake. And she said, well, I, we don't have anything. I have just enough for one more bread cake. And I was about, uh, or a couple, and I'm, I was going to, to cook those, bake those, and then my son and I, we're going to eat them, and then we're just going to lay down and die because that's the end of the food, and we're going to die. And so Elijah said something. For the, of course, he recognized, well, I guess she didn't get the memo. I guess God didn't send an angel to her to tell her that he had you know, chosen her to provide for me. Think about that. Some people are chosen to provide for the man of God, for the prophet. In this case, she was. And so she did it. She made him a cake first. He said, make me one first. That seems kind of like putting yourself above everybody else, but it was an act of faith. You just make me one first. Got to take care of the rest. And you know, she never ran out of oil. 
and she never ran out of flour that entire time. And during the time of famine where people were dying everywhere, thousands of people were dying, she and her son, with the man of God in her house, survived. And they not only survived, they had plenty to eat during that time. Now, here comes the time of darkness. Here comes a, a season where someone has to bear fruit. This woman has seen this miracle take place. She knows it's taking place because of the man of God is there and she knows that God is working with him. But then one day her son says, oh, my head, my head, his head was hurting and he fell as a dead person. And then she blamed the man of God. She said, and God. She said, here you are. You've come to my house. Why did you even come here? Listen, they would have already been dead. They would have starved to death. Such an agonizing, long death. They would have already starved to death except for the man of God. And now she's blaming him. She said, you came here, and because you're here, then God is with you, and he sees my crummy life, my sinful life that I've lived all this time, and now he's finally just fed up with me, and he's going to judge me. She's bringing judgment on me, and it's all because you came. Well, all right. What if he hadn't come? You would have already been dead. Your son would have already died. Y'all would have been, you would have probably watched your son die before your eyes, before you ever died. That's what would have happened. But as it is now, you're fat and sassy. How about that? It's not enough to just be fat and satisfied. Now you've got to be sassy about it. So Elijah said, well, put him on my bed. And he laid down on that boy. And he laid down on that boy and he cried out to God, bring the life back into this child. And God did. And then he came down with that. He was in the upper room and he came down with that child and he received your son back alive. Now see, God subtracted. What did he subtract from her? Well, the flour and the oil for two cakes. Put me first. Subtract yourself, what you're doing for yourself and your son, you subtract from you and see if God will not multiply back to you. What did God do? He multiplied back. And then a time of trial came upon, a time of darkness. And he said, and then her son fell dead. And now she's distraught. She's blaming God and she's blaming the prophet. What did God do? God subtracted her son, but he multiplied her son back to her and blessed her. You see, the blessing was there, amen? But that's how God often works. In John chapter 6, we have the story of where a great multitude of over 5,000 men were following Jesus and listening to him and watching the miracles, listening to the word of God that he spoke. And they were outside of the town and there were so many people there and Jesus felt compassion for these people. So he asked his disciples, he said, we need to feed these people. And one of them said, 
Lord, shall we go into town and buy bread? We, it, it will take a year's salary to buy enough bread to feed this multitude one time. And Jesus said something. He says, what do we have? You see, that's how God looks at it. What do you have that you can give? What do you have that you can offer to the Lord? What do you have that the Lord can subtract to you or you can give it from you to the Lord that he may multiply it, not only for others, but even back to you? And they said, well, we don't really have anything. And then, well, there's this little boy here. He's got five small barley loaves of bread and two little fish. And that's all we got. And he said, okay, here's what I want you to do. And this took an act of faith. I want you to go and tell the people, divide them up in groups of 50. Now, we'll kind of know how many they are. Divide them up into groups of 50. And then you take this basket and these uh, five small barley loaves and two fish, and you go began distributing it to them. The disciples had seen enough miracles that they believed in the Lord enough, and they did that. The Lord lifted the basket of the loaves and the bread and the fish, and he blessed it. He blessed it. And he said, thank you, Father, for providing. I want you to think about that. He didn't thank God afterwards. He thanked God before, knowing already and receiving by faith that God would perform the miracle. When the singers went out, when Judah was surrounded by an innumerable multitude and Jehoshaphat cried the king, Jehoshaphat cried out to God, says, we are helpless before this great army that is coming against us. And the Lord said, don't worry about it. The battle is mine. What do you have? That's what he was really saying. And Joshua looked around and said, well, I have faith. I have the faith that I can be thankful. Matter of fact, I'm going to assemble my, to prove it, I'm going to assemble my singers and I'm going to put them in front as we walk out to where the enemy is camped, singing praises of thankfulness for what God has provided for us and for the victory. He had faith. He gave his faith. He acted upon his faith and he saw the result. If we act, of it, act as if, we will see. We have to believe to receive. Amen. So there are those, those so, so of course, when they went out there, the army had killed themselves. God had caused them to be confused and they attacked themselves. Isn't that a wonderful thing to know that God can actually, we, we are, you know, we deal uh, we struggle against the forces of darkness, against principalities in high places. They, they come at us, uh, you know, in fury. But they're the same spirits that work up, 
you know, these armies that have always come against the people of God. It's the same thing. And if, if the army is confused and turning on themselves, you know why? That's the manifestation, the physical manifestation uh, of what has already happened in the spiritual. God has already confused those spirits that were stirring them up and turned them on themselves. And we're just seeing the play out in the physical with the physical army. So it's a wonderful thing that we can pray and by faith we can receive the fact that God himself will come against our enemies. It doesn't matter whether they're made out of flesh, you know, and being stirred up by spirits or if they're just, uh, you know, uh, spirits without bodies, that demonic spirits, uh, familiar spirits, warring spirits that are coming against us because we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. And he who is in us is greater than any of them in the world, is greater than the devil. We're greater than the devil. He who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. That's the God of this world. That's the devil. And so, not only did God take care of the enemy that was coming against Judah and Jehoshaphat, but he, when they got there, there was no enemy alive. But there was lots of provisions, lots of spools, and they spooled them. They brought home. They just, it probably took days and days. God not only subtracted the enemy from them, but he multiplied a blessing through that subtraction back to them. And that's what Jesus did with the five loaves of bread and the two fish. He blessed it, and that blessing caused what was to be subtracted into a great multiplied blessing. And when they got finished feeding Thousands and thousands and thousands of people, 5,000 men alone, much less the women and children. After they fed all of them with five barley loaves and, and two small fishes, they had to go, there was so much, everybody ate their fill. Listen, everybody was filled up. They couldn't eat anymore. And so they went with these baskets. Each of the apostles went, went out there with their basket and to, to receive what was left over, what was not eaten. See, it, the God's blessing overflowed. And when, when they went back out there, they came back and, they, and Jesus said, how much do you have now? He said, we have 12 overflowing baskets full. They had one basket that wasn't full of bread, one basket that wasn't full of fish. And after feeding thousands of people until they were completely full, God had subtracted and multiplied back so much that every single apostle now had an overflowing large basket of bread and fish. Romans chapter 4. And we were talking about Abraham's willingness to offer Isaac. Notice verse 13 of chapter 4. <clears throat> For the promise to Abraham 
or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Or if those who are of the law and heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there also is no violation. You know, the law is a power of sin. Although the law is still written on every man's heart, we see that in chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Romans, that there's no one that's not guilty. Whether you have the law written on tablets of stone or on animal skins like the book of Moses, or whether it was just simply the principle, the, the law of nature of what that there is a right and there is a wrong written on every man's heart, every man is guilty. And that's what uh, we find earlier. So it doesn't really matter. Uh, if the only thing is, is that the, the people who had the law of Moses and the Ten Commandments, they were exalting themselves as if they actually kept the law. And it stood as a uh, witness against them, actually. But every man's heart is a witness against them, personally, because we've all done what we know was wrong. There's not one person that has lived up to the standard of their own conscience, not one. For this reason, it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. He's saying, so it's not just the circumcised, but it's Gentiles too, because Abraham is not just the father of the circumcision. He's father of us all. And he's talking to Romans who were Gentiles. As it is written, a father of many nations, I have made you. How did, when did he do that? Well, when he brought Isaac back up off that altar. He brought up, he laid down one son, but he brought up a multitude of many nations. In the presence of him whom he believed, even God who gives life to the dead and calls into that which does not exist, calls into being that which do not exist, in hope against hope he believed so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which uh, had been spoken. So shall your descendants be. Verse 19, without becoming weak in the faith, he contemplated his own body. Now as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but he grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. So what did he cut off? He cut off, he allowed God to subtract disbelief, unbelief, so that faith would rule. And being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. So he was fully assured of that. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not yet seen. You don't see it, but you're convicted that they're more real than what you do see. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Now our final scripture is going to be over in 
Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to read about Abraham here, continue on with Abraham. See, when he received Isaac back, he received Isaac with a harvest. Isaac went down as a single kernel of wheat, but he was raised as a harvest. Verse 8, chapter 11 of Hebrews, verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when he believed, when he was called, he obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, just like us. We're living as aliens in this land. Dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking, notice, for a city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. What are you looking for? What's your goal? What's your ultimate goal? What are you, where, where do you want to spend your eternity? Think about it. For he, he endured these hardships. He endured all these things. Why? Because he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself received the ability to conceive. Now, Sarah could have conceived at age 65, but she didn't have the faith to conceive until she was 90. So she didn't believe until she was 90, and then she conceived. Sarah received the ability. She received the ability to conceive. God wants to birth something in your life. God has already birthed things in your life, but God wants to birth many things in your life, special things in your life, maybe something that he can't birth in any other person because you're unique. He created you as special, unique than anyone else in the world, and he wants to birth something special in you. But you will receive the ability to conceive by faith. When you believe it and receive it, you have to believe to receive. You have to act on it. Act as if. By faith, even Sarah, verse 11, received the ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life. In other words, you believe the impossible because it's possible with God. Since she considered him faithful, who had promised. Therefore, there was born even of one man, and him as good as dead, at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them, and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Do you confess that you're a stranger and exile on this earth? You have to see yourselves as that. Because otherwise, this is home. But this is not home for the faithful. You see, home for the faithful is in a city whose architect and builder is God. is a heavenly country. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. Don't return to the world. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Listen, 
Why is God not ashamed to be called your God? Because you want to be where he is. You desire his country. You desire his city, the city of God. For he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, he offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. The promise would be a whole, like this, innumerable. But he was laying down one. But he picked up the innumerable, like the sands of the seashore. He laid down one. It was attracted to him. He was willing to let go of it. But God just picked it right back up, made the sacrifice for him, provided another sacrifice, and gave him back Isaac, but not just Isaac. But he gave back the descendants as, as innumerable as the sands of the seashore. He multiplied that offering. It was he to whom it was said, Isaac, your descendants will be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type, as a type, just like Jesus. So in Isaac, he received a great harvest back. So in conclusion, let me go over just a few things as we close here. God is much more concerned about us being fruitful than he is us being comfortable. And sometimes he will make us uncomfortable in order to make us fruitful. And that's just the way it is. God multiplies by subtraction. And he does that in order that we would bear fruit. He takes something or he receives something, either way. We and all things are created by him, for him, and for his glory. And I want to end with just this question again that we found the answer to in John chapter 15, verse 8 on that last Passover. We've already read this, but I want to close with this. How is our heavenly Father glorified? And Jesus said, the Father is glorified in this, that you bear much fruit. Praise the Lord. God bless you all.